As the Republican presidential candidates look ahead to next week's New Hampshire primary, Ron DeSantis is putting a positive spin on his second-place finish in Iowa, well behind former President Donald Trump. In spite of all of that that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. It's Tuesday, January 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, attacks by Houthi rebels continue to disrupt shipping in the Red Sea, but so far they aren't having much of an impact on the economy. And we'll explore the trend of Taiwanese-American children of immigrants moving from the U.S. to Taiwan, hoping for a safer future, despite any concerns in the West about a possible China-Taiwan war. Plus, an Emmy for Elton John means he now has an EGOT. It's 4.01. News headlines are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The top Republican presidential candidates are heading to New Hampshire after last night's Iowa caucuses. But as NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reports, they didn't all go straight to the Granite State. After his victory speech Monday night, former President Donald Trump went to New York for the opening of the defamation case brought by the writer E. Jean Carroll, who has accused him of rape. In an earlier case, a jury already found that Trump had sexually abused Carroll. Trump will hold a rally tonight in the town of Atkinson, New Hampshire, and tomorrow in Portsmouth. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is also holding rallies here today and tomorrow, hoping for a strong finish against Trump. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis went straight to Haley's home state of South Carolina for campaign events today. He and Haley have been battling for the non-Trump vote for months. He will then pivot to hold New Hampshire events today and tomorrow. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News, Manchester, New Hampshire. A U.S. defense official says the Navy has carried out another strike against Houthi targets in Yemen. NPR's Greg Meyer reports this comes amid a new report of a Houthi attack that has damaged a commercial ship. In the latest round of attacks, the defense official said the U.S. carried out a pre-dawn strike that destroyed four Houthi ballistic missiles that were intended for use against ships in the Red Sea. However, several hours later, the Houthis did launch a missile that hit a Greek-owned commercial ship. The ship suffered limited damage. No crew member was injured, and it continued on its journey. The U.S. Navy has now carried out several strikes against the Houthis since last week. U.S. officials believe this is reducing, though not stopping, the Houthi attacks. Greg Myrie, NPR News. Millions of people across much of the U.S. awoke to heavy snow, freezing rain, and record-breaking temperatures today. The Arctic blasts produced wind chills as low as minus 40 in some areas. The National Weather Service says dangerous wind chills and record-setting cold temperatures continue for the center of the country. Meanwhile, snow will accumulate across the eastern Great Lakes and northeast corridors. Through today, more lake-effect snow downwind of the Great Lakes are expected through midweek. U.S. stocks ending the day sharply lower. Here's NPR's David Gura. Stocks sank at the start of a shortened trading week. Shares of Spirit Airlines fell by more than 40 percent after a federal judge blocked JetBlue's purchase of Spirit for $3.8 billion. Meanwhile, public companies continued to update investors on how they did in the last quarter of 2023, and Goldman Sachs performed better than analysts expected at the end of what was a tough year for the bank. Wall Street's optimism the Federal Reserve is close to cutting interest rates is starting to fade. In a closely watched speech, Fed Governor Christopher Waller said he doesn't see why the Fed would move as quickly or cut interest rates as rapidly as it did in the past. This is NPR. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Governor Maura Healey has announced a plan to include about $114 million in new child care spending in the 2025 state budget. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, the proposal includes an expansion of a child care subsidy program. Right now, the Child Care Financial Assistance Program is only open to families who make 50 percent or less of the state median income. Healy wants to increase that eligibility cutoff to include families making 85 percent. Early education advocates are praising the move. Lauren Kennedy is the co-president of Neighborhood Villages. I think what the governor and the lieutenant governor really signaled today is their commitment to early education being education, to finally, right, sort of saying, we're going to start making the investments, demonstrating that early education is a public good. Healy's early education investment proposal also includes a plan to expand universal preschool. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. A study released today shows students who participated in METCO scored higher on standardized tests than their peers who did not participate in the voluntary desegregation busing program. The study out of Tufts University also showed METCO students over the past 30 years had better attendance and were more likely to go to a four-year college. The students had lower dropout and higher graduation rates compared to students not in the program. The state's highest court officially has its newest justice. Bessie Dewar was sworn in today to the Supreme Judicial Court. The governor's counsel unanimously approved her nomination last week. She is Governor Healy's first appointee to the SJC. Well, the women's hockey beanpot starts this afternoon. Boston University is facing Boston College in the 4 o'clock game, followed by Northeastern versus Harvard. Today's games are at Harvard's home arena in Alston. But the women's championship and consolation games will take place at TD Garden for the first time ever. Those games will be next Tuesday evening. The men's beanpot tournament is February 5th and 12th at the Garden. We'll have a mix of rain, some of it freezing rain and snow for the evening commute. Then we'll see gradual clearing overnight. Lows will be around 20 degrees. Tomorrow looks sunny with temperatures in the upper 20s. A mix of clouds and sun on Thursday. Highs approaching 30 degrees that day. Then Friday nearing 30 again and we might get some more snow. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston with a rainy, snowy, foggy mist. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners. And by Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Coming up, how Israel's war with Hamas is affecting the economy of one southern Israeli resort town. That's in a few minutes. First, after a year of campaigning, after more than 120 million bucks in ad spending in Iowa, the caucuses have come and gone. And the result was what everyone pretty much expected. Former President Donald Trump won in a landslide. This is a very special night, and this is the first because the big night is going to be in November when we take back our country, and truly, we do make our country great again. Thank you very much. So what's it all mean? For that, we turn to NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey there, Domenico. Hey, Mary Louise. The Associated Press made a swift call, made quite an early call last night, and the call was that Trump had an insurmountable lead. What stood out to you about last night? 
Well, surprises can happen in politics, and we should prepare ourselves for those, but this result was not one of them. I mean, I was surprised, though, at how quickly the race was called. I mean, just half an hour after voting began, AP and other networks were able to do that because of the overwhelming lead that Trump had in the entrance polls that were taken throughout the state, and then that matched some key precincts, and that's all that was really needed for them to have that kind of confidence level. In the end, it was Trump with more than 50% of the vote, exactly what polling had shown for months and months. And then in second place, admittedly a distant, far behind Trump's second place, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. What does this mean for his campaign? Well, DeSantis eked out second place over Nikki Haley, the former Trump UN ambassador, and that means he's using that as a reason to keep going. You helped us get a ticket punched out of the Hawkeye State. We have a lot of work to do, but I can tell you this, as the next president of the United States, I am going to get the job done for this country. You know, this is only going to prolong a three-person race, which would only help Trump. You know, in all honesty, a path to the nomination for DeSantis looks all but closed off. I mean, he finished 30 points behind Trump. That's more than double the largest margin of victory in Iowa caucus history. You know, DeSantis was trying to sell himself to conservatives as Trump without the baggage, Trump light. But at least in Iowa, Republican caucus goers said they preferred the original. And what about for Nikki Haley? Where does last night leave her? I mean, she missed a real opportunity to nudge DeSantis out of the race and make this really a two-person race. You know, polls have shown her trending up. The super PAC supporting her opened the spigot in Iowa in the last couple of weeks, really trying to win there. Um, And she just missed finishing a couple points behind DeSantis. Here she was last night making the argument to voters that Trump and Biden are unpopular and that the country should try something new. The question before Americans is now very clear. Do you want more of the same? Or do you want a new generation of conservative leadership? You know, really, I think the question is whether Republican base voters will buy that message. She tried to frame this as a two-person race going forward last night, but it's really hard to make that case when you finish third. We'll stay with the race going forward because Nikki Haley spent a lot more time. She spent a lot more energy campaigning in New Hampshire than in Iowa. So what are you looking for ahead of the New Hampshire primary next week? Well, the stakes are certainly much higher now for Haley in New Hampshire. Um, She may not need to win it to stay in, but she does have to come reasonably close, I think, and show that she can give Trump a real run for his money. I mean, remember, this is about as moderate a state as we're going to see in this nominating process. Independents can vote in New Hampshire, unlike in Iowa. Voters there are far less religious, more moderate, more suburban. If she can't do well there, what's the rationale for her to stay in and who she appeals to? Who she appeals to, indeed. All right, well, send us out into the night. Let's close this chapter. Send us out with a final, your final thought on (laughs) Iowa. I mean, turnout really jumped out to me. I mean, it's just kind of bizarre. Only 110,000 Republicans went out to vote. That's 15% of the total number of registered Republicans in the state. Let's put this another way. Almost $124 million was spent in ads over the past year in Iowa to motivate 110,000 people to vote. I mean, that's $1,124 per voter. We're in a really weird situation where that few voters play such an outsized role in the process. And Pierre's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks. You're welcome. Israel's war against Hamas has taken a massive toll. Of course, that includes the number of people dead and wounded, the infrastructure destroyed, and the trauma that will last for years. 
NPR's international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam has this look at a different way the war is affecting Israel. The country's economy has taken a serious hit, including in tourism. With the clear blue waters of the Gulf of Aqaba and the stark peaks of the surrounding mountains, Elat has long been a major driver of Israel's economy, pulling in some 250,000 foreign tourists a month. That evaporated in early October, after Hamas militants attacked Israel. Instead of tourists, Elat's hotels are now filled with Israelis displaced by the war. When school lets out, the large, airy lobbies of Eilat's luxury hotels are filled with children, zooming by on scooters and grabbing ice cream. After the Hamas attack, the government evacuated more than 60,000 Israelis to Eilat. Mechel Rahav comes from Nerim, a tiny community about a mile from the Gaza border, where five people were killed and another five taken hostage by Hamas on October 7th. Rahav says militants stormed their house. Her husband shot one dead, then handed her an M16 rifle. He gave me the gun, and we were looking at each other, and we said, we're fighting till the last bullet that we have. Rahav's house was destroyed, but the family survived. They arrived in Eilat with nothing, and like many others, relied on donations from the people in the city. Rahav says Eilat was like a cocoon, which helped them deal with the emotional aftermath of the Hamas attack. Like other displaced Israelis, Rahav's hotel rooms and food are paid for by the Israeli government. Uh, the thing is, you know, Elat, I very much love the city, but it's remote from everything. And a lot of us work two, three hours from here. While evacuees like Rahav adjusted to their temporary homes, business owners in Elat adjusted to a new reality. The once busy tree-lined boulevards are deserted, restaurants and shops are empty, and worry amongst business owners is almost palpable. Shmulek Zino owns a 30-foot wood-trimmed tourist boat. Come, you go upstairs. You will say, I'll show you upstairs. Sorry about the mess. But Zino says for three decades, the family-run business has been showing mostly European tourists the sights around Elat. We're doing uh, cruises with uh, lunch, and then also for diving, we sometimes we're doing. And uh, normally we're like, cruising around the border, Jordan, Egypt. Dolphin Reef. Nowadays, Zeno spends his days doing maintenance on his boat and tending to his dockside flower bed. He says he's taking a real financial hit because there are no tourists. Nothing, nothing. Three and a half, four months, even not one cruise we didn't have here. And we don't know what's going to be in the future, you know. We, we, we didn't see the end of this war. <laughs> Not far away, Sami Azule gazes wearily out at a few children playing in the Gulf of Aqaba and shakes his head. He owns Elat Water Sports, which rents out paddle boards and the like. He's had to lay off 15 people. Azule says many of the evacuees don't have money for water sports and adds that tourists don't want to come to a depressing place for vacation. The problem is, so they don't like to stay because the atmosphere is not good. People are suffering, people are in a bad situation. Why should they come here? Who wants to come to make a holiday when there is only, only people who are very sad here? The Israeli government recently gave the municipality of Eilat 50 million shekels, about $13 million, to help businesses. 
Itamari Litsur, CEO of Elat Hotels Association, wants part of that money to be used for an advertising campaign aimed at the domestic market, to let Israelis know there are great bargains on flights and hotel rooms and lots of things to do. The prices now in Elat is the lowest one that was ever. It's like we're coming back from the 90s. The price is very, very cheap. Elitzur says the advertising campaign will encourage Israelis to just come take the air. In other words, relax, breathe deep. He says they avoid the word vacation because Israelis don't want to feel guilty about enjoying themselves during the war with Gaza. It's not like come for vacation to Elat. Most of us have somebody that we know that they are now in the war. So this is our neighbor, this is our friends, somebody in war. And I cannot say to them, I'm going to vacation. More rooms are coming available as displaced Israelis in Eilat go home or find new places to live. About half of those who arrived in October have now left. Mikhail Rahav says all those from Nerim are moving to the city of Beersheba, which is closer to home. We have to have community to preserve. So we have to look forward. We have to continue moving. Anat Marley will also go to Beersheba. She's looking forward to leaving the hotel in Eilat. I'm just waiting, you know, to be able, I, I can't believe I'm saying it, but cook, clean, wash the dishes. But Marley says many other displaced Israelis aren't ready to leave. A lot of the people are just saying, you know, we're, we have no plan on, on going back until we're, security is restored and, and the, the war, the, the goals of the fighting have been accomplished. Which means thousands of displaced Israelis could remain in Elat for a long time. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Elat. Indigenous people make up just 2% of Taiwan's population and some non-indigenous Taiwanese look down on them. A lot of average Taiwanese people would say to me, you're indigenous, you're not Taiwanese. I say, because I'm indigenous, I am a real Taiwanese person. We talk with indigenous Taiwanese about life on the island tomorrow on All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is All Things Considered. And thanks for being with 90.9 WBUR this afternoon. Coming up next on All Things Considered, thoughts on the new coach of the Patriots, Gerard Mayo. We'll hear more about who he is and how he'll approach coaching the team led by Bill Belichick for 24 seasons. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. On Wall Street today, the Dow dropped 0.6 percent. The S&P lost just over one-third of a percent. NASDAQ dipped 0.2 percent. In local business news, it's closing time for Boston-based alcohol delivery app Drizzly. Uber Technologies announced today it's shutting down the service it bought in 2021. Drizzly was founded in 2012 and launched its service in Boston a year later. In 2020, the company announced it was the victim of a data breach that affected the personal information of about 2.5 million customers. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Feldman Geospatial, presenting live jazz weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com Boston. 
Well, it might be slow going out on the roads this evening with a blend of snow, rain, and freezing rain. Temperatures will dip to about 20 degrees. Skies will clear overnight and remain that way for a sunny day tomorrow. Highs will reach the upper 20s. Thursday should be partly sunny with temperatures around 30. And then Friday, there's a chance of more snow with highs that day approaching 30 degrees. Right now, it's 34 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Last week, in a mutual split, legendary football coach Bill Belichick parted ways with the New England Patriots after 24 years as head coach. One day later, the team promoted their inside linebackers coach, Gerard Mayo. Mayo will be the youngest head coach in the NFL and the first black head coach for the Patriots. We're joined now by Shalise Manza-Young. She spent almost a decade covering the Patriots and is here to help us unpack all of this. Hey there. Hey, Juana. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for being here. So, Shalise, just how big of a deal is it that Gerard Mayo is taking over the Patriots from Bill Belichick, who's been just a legendary NFL coach? Taking over for somebody as entrenched and successful as Bill Belichick is just not an easy task at all. Gerard Mayo is fortunate. He has the full backing of the ownership group, Robert Kraft, and his son, Jonathan Kraft, They tabbed him as head coach in waiting last year. Um, Gerard had lined up interviews with other teams for the head coaching position. And Robert Kraft just was so committed to Gerard Mayo that he said, nope, please cancel those. They renegotiated his contract and essentially made him head coach in waiting. The NFL has something called the Rooney Rule, whereby teams are required to interview at least two non-white candidates for you know their general manager opening, their head coach openings, and if they have openings at their coordinator positions as well. So really it can almost only happen when the head coach in waiting is a black or non-white coach. And Gerard Mayo, we should just note, he's been on the coaching staff of the Patriots since 2019, and he also used to be a linebacker for the Patriots. Can you just tell us a little bit more about him? Yeah, he came in, he was incredibly highly regarded out of the University of Tennessee when he was drafted. Um, He was named Defensive Rookie of the Year after his first year with the Patriots. And he didn't have a long career. He only played about eight years. And then after he retired, Bill Belichick tried to get him into coaching right away. But Gerard actually went into the corporate world for about three years before he did finally come back into the coaching ranks. But he was a tremendous leader. I think he was a captain for every year except his rookie year. And the thing that people forget with an NFL head coaching role is that at the end of the day, whenever there's something big or small that happens related to the team, not just the players, but even beyond that, they come to the head coach. 
And I think, you know, Gerard's background as a leader, not just in football, but, you know, in the corporate world, will play a big role into that. You followed this team for so many years, and there's never been a season quite like this one for the Patriots, and I do not say that in a good way. Um, What do you think is needed to get the team past this year's dreadful losing season? I hope that the Crafts, you know, really give him the time to right the ship in New England, because as of right now, the roster is really bereft of a lot of talent. And because Bill Belichick had his hands in everything, everything, it's almost like doing a gut renovation on your house, down to the studs. So the next big step, I think, will be deciding who is the general manager that Gerard will be working with in terms of acquiring personnel, evaluating the personnel they have now, who they want to move forward with, and you know what players they'll be bringing in. Because the Patriots had such a terrible season, they'll be choosing pretty high in the draft, and this draft is considered very strong for top-notch quarterbacks coming out of college. So I would guess that that's the first thing they do is to try to find a quarterback for the future um, and then start rebuilding from there. And lastly, Shalise, I mean, there's so much to unpack here, but I do just want to make the point that the league has struggled for years, really, with minority hiring efforts. And particularly when we look at the diversity or lack thereof among head coaches, there were only three black head coaches in the NFL for much of this season. So looking at this from a big picture angle, how do you read the elevation of Gerard Mayo in light of that history for the league? You know, the thing that I've gone back to is that he's getting the chance that really no black head coaches have ever gotten before. We've seen white coaches be elevated to head coaching roles with similarly thin coaching resumes. And it's almost unheard of for a black head coach to get, you know, that same consideration. The crafts are considered really among the most respected owners in the NFL. And I think, you know, Robert Kraft has been very open about not just as a Jewish man, you know, about trying to combat anti-Semitism, but they also played a role with some of their former players in getting legislation passed in the state of Massachusetts that was helping children of color. You know, they raised the age that children can be tried as adults. They helped, uh, I think, with education budgeting and making sure that more money gets to underserved school districts. And to me, this is him, you know, taking another step. And I don't think that it's just hiring a black man for hiring a black man's sake. I I think that he really truly believes in Gerard Mayo. He said two years ago to media that there was no ceiling on what Gerard Mayo could do. And he knew that he would be a head coach someday. Sports writer Shalise Manza-Young, thank you so much. Thank you. Elton John has achieved a new status. And no, we do not mean knighthood. He got that back in 1998. Sir Elton John became the 19th person ever to become an EGOT winner. That is an artist who has won an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. He was waiting for an Emmy to finish out that set, and last night... And the Emmy goes to Elton John live. Farewell from Dodger Stadium. He won for Outstanding Variety Special, filmed during his last show in North America at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles.
Elton John couldn't be at the Emmys to accept the award. He is recovering from knee surgery, but in a statement, he said that he was incredibly grateful and humbled. He started collecting for the EGOT back in 1987 when he won his first Grammy for That's What Friends Are For, a collaboration with Dionne Warwick and Friends. In 1995, he earned his first Oscar for The Lion King's Can You Feel the Love Tonight. And can you feel the love tonight? It is where we are. And in 2000, he took home a Tony for best original score for the musical Aida. I would rather wear a barrel than conserve Elton John is the third pop star to complete the EGOT set in good company with Jennifer Hudson and John Legend. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Ahead in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, Michigan hopes to join Colorado in passing a law that allows farmers to repair farm machinery themselves. The latest in the right to repair push. Are you working on your fitness in the new year? Join us at City Space on Monday, January 29th for a boxing night featuring strength training and shadow boxing paired with hip hop and house music. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We'll have a messy mix of weather this evening. There's a chance of both snow and freezing rain. It should stop after 8 o'clock, then most of the clouds will move out overnight as lows get down around 20. It'll be sunny tomorrow with highs in the upper 20s. Partly sunny Thursday, around 30 degrees, and then Friday will bring another chance of snow. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. A case before the Supreme Court that started with a group of New Jersey fishermen could have a far-reaching effect on federal regulations. A rule that dates back to a 1984 case involving the energy giant Chevron and the Environmental Protection Agency could be upended, weakening the power of federal agencies. We'll examine the potential impact of the case tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Fresh off a second-place finish in the GOP Iowa caucus yesterday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis started his day campaigning in South Carolina. NPR's Stephen Fowler tells us DeSantis says... He's best positioned to challenge former President Trump for the Republican nomination. DeSantis finished a distant second to former President Donald Trump, but slightly ahead of one-time South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. The brief stop at a packed airplane hangar in Greenville included a stump speech, questions from the crowd, and a not-so-veiled shot at his thoughts about Haley's chances moving forward. 
Her fundamental problem is that she does not have support amongst core Republicans. She's relying on non-Republicans, which is not the way you win a Republican nomination. But Monday's Iowa caucus results and polling in upcoming primary contests like New Hampshire shows DeSantis' support with the Republicans is also still far behind that of the former president. Stephen Fowler, NPR News, Greenville, South Carolina. The U.S. has launched a third strike against Yemen-based Houthis, hitting four anti-ship missiles aimed at the crucial shipping uh, port in the uh, Red Sea. The latest attack came after the Iranian-backed militant group claimed responsibility for attacking a southern European carrier from Malta in the region. There has been no let-up so far in Houthi attacks, despite the massive U.S. and British assault on the group last week. Meanwhile, the U.K. government has announced it will ban a high-profile Islamist group that authorities say has praised Hamas's attacks on Israel. Villa Marx has more on the developments. Home Secretary James Cleverly accused the organization of being, quote, anti-Semitic and actively promoting and encouraging terrorism as he introduced legislation that would outlaw membership along with public expressions of support for the group. Hizbut Tahrir maintains it is non-violent, but amid significant polarization in Britain over the war in Gaza, authorities have taken action that they've long promised. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. An immigrant support group that hosted an event in Melrose is denouncing negative social media posts and emails aimed at the organization. Paul Belfonte, president of Immigrant Support Alliance, says the responses came after his group posted information for people looking to host a newly arrived immigrant. Belfonte says the negative rhetoric even made it on the Laura Ingram show on Fox, which showed a flyer about the event. With her scornful, condescending tone, it was basically like, are you kidding me? The timing of that exactly coincided when a lot of the really harsh invectives started coming through on these emails. Belfonte says the immigrants they're helping are in the U.S. legally and have been vetted by the federal government. The governor's office has appointed two people to lead efforts to connect new arrivals in the state to work opportunities. Ken Brown has been appointed Assistant Secretary of Employer Engagement and Employment Outcomes. He will oversee hiring and job placement for migrants with legal work authorization. Sarah Joseph will be Director of Community Engagement for the state. She'll connect migrants with employers and help address things including language barriers and skill development. Today's wintry weather mix continues for this afternoon's commute. The State Department of Transportation says crews are working to treat area roads and highways. National Weather Service meteorologist Kyle Peterson says the roads could become treacherous with the mix of sleet and freezing rain. If pavement is wet and untreated, it could become uh, frozen. You know, you can get some black ice in there. So it could be slippery out this evening, especially the later we get into the evening. Some areas outside of 495 could see snow before it all wraps up early this evening. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce tells us what we can expect the rest of the day and beyond. We've been dealing with rain mixed with sleet and snow well inland now. The rain snow line going to collapse farther east over the course of early evening. Everything winding down 6 to 8 p.m. Additional snow would be generally outside of 495, coating to an inch or two there. Otherwise, things are going to ice up this evening as tonight as the temperature drops into the teens and 20s. Sun's back tomorrow, but we don't get out of the upper 20s. And then the next storm, Thursday night into Friday, right now looks like it's taking a little farther track offshore. So we may get grays with just a little bit of light snow. We'll keep you posted. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 435. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man seeking audience. 
a one-man, one-audience show. 264 Huntington Ave, starting Saturday. In sports, the women's hockey bean pot starts this afternoon, or has started this afternoon. Boston University is facing Boston College in the first game, followed by Northeastern and Harvard. Today's games are at Harvard's home arena in Alston, but the women's championship and consolation games will take place at TD Garden for the first time ever. That'll be next week. The Celtics and Bruins are off tonight. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Taipei, Taiwan. I have a confession. This is the first time I have come back here in 30 years. And I can't quite explain what's taken me so long, except that I always thought of Taiwan as the place my parents left behind. And that as their child, I should continue their path by leaning into the American life they chose for me. But You know, an interesting thing happened during the pandemic. Even though China was intensifying military activity in the Taiwan Strait, a surge of Taiwanese Americans moved out of the U.S. and to Taiwan. Some of them had never lived on this island. I'm Michelle Kuo, and I moved to Taiwan three years ago. I'm Jocelyn Chung, and I moved to Taiwan about a year ago. I'm Rosa Tai Jacobs, and I moved to Taiwan six months ago. On a Sunday afternoon in Da'an Forest Park in Taipei, we brought these three women together to understand why each of them decided to start a new future in the place of their parents' past. Michelle Kuo said she actually burst into tears when her husband first suggested the idea. I was like, well, how am I going to be a lawyer? How am I going to learn the language? And then there was this added layer where I had like a million aunties who were disappointed that I wasn't a doctor, didn't make tons of money. It's like, I'm going to have to like move in with 24 million of my aunties. And I was like, oh my God, eventually my daughter is going to speak better manner than me. And she's going to look at me with contempt the way I secretly looked at my parents when they couldn't speak English. So then I'd have to work through all this bad karma. The kind of anxiety and dread and guilt all mixed together. And also this sense of like, wow, I don't know anything about where I come from. And the the kind of like very repressed shame, I think. Yeah, I relate to that guilt. Well, how about you, Jocelyn? Because you were 26 and you moved to Taiwan. How did you make that decision? The decision was based upon safety, based upon a lot of bit of political disillusionment in the U.S. Um, I feel like this is something that maybe all Taiwanese Americans specifically talk about here is that the feeling of safety is completely different in relation to guns, in relation to school safety, in, in relation to public safety. Like we're in a park right now just surrounded by tons and tons of intergenerational families. Kids are off playing on their own. Like we know that they'll be safe. My wallet's over there. Nobody's watching it. Oh, no one's going to take it. And if you leave and you come back, you'll probably still be there. And I think that that is something really special about Taiwan. I think also as a woman here, being able to walk at night, uh, which is so simple, but I'm at ease in, in general. Rosa, when you listen to Jocelyn talk about safety and other reasons why she moved here, how much do you relate to those feelings? I definitely relate to that. Things are 
sanitary, they're efficient, technologically advanced. You know, that was not what my parents experienced, which propelled them to want to move away. You know, they lived under martial law for um, some time. And so when I was deciding to come back, you know, my mom was like, you know, you have this dream of what it would be like, but it's not actually that. Well, let's talk about what it is actually like to live here day to day. Um, because when people outside Taiwan talk about this place, it's often, you know, in the context of geopolitics, cross-strait tensions. Do you feel like every day you're under the threat of China? <laughs> yeah, I definitely had friends ask me, um, you know, you're moving to Taiwan. I'm, I'm excited for you, but I'm also scared for you because you're going to, you know, live in this place that might not, <laughs> might not be around for long. Not to say that there's no truth to that. Obviously, we should be alert that, you know, the geopolitics are constantly changing and the tensions are possibly um, rising. But life here is more than just that. Um, it's kind of like in the U.S., there's, it's complex, right? Like there's a lot of bounty, but there's also a lot of anxiety we live with. What is it like to go from being a racial minority in America to just blending in, at least physically? I think when you grow up a minority or, or the other, you're doing so much labor to prove that you belong. And so I just found myself relaxing when I was here. I was like, well, as long as I don't say anything and they don't hear my accent, I, you know, I'm an anonymous part of the majority. What a privilege. But I also think you never let go of the consciousness of my minority. And what has blown me away being in Taiwan is the way in which different Taiwanese progressives have fought for a place for minorities. So one example, children in elementary school are required to take a minority language, either an indigenous language or a Southeast Asian language because there's so many migrant workers. Now, there needs to be more of these classes, like one hour a week isn't enough. But I don't know any school in the United States off reservation that requires people to learn a Native American language. Well, how about you, Jocelyn? What were you afraid your parents would think when you told them, I want to move back to Taiwan? Uh, all of my, my mom, my aunts and uncles, they're all like, why? <laughs> and I have half of my family in the U.S., half of them still here. All of the ones who immigrated, I don't know if it's part of their pride that they feel. We're successful here, we stayed here, we built this whole life. And so the idea of going back, the knee-jerk reaction for them was, why? Um, I was pleasantly surprised to be so welcomed by my family here. They were like, oh, like the prodigal child has come home uh, kind of feeling. And they're like, oh, yeah, welcome back. They've just embraced me completely. And just they've even used me as a tool to scold the rest of the, the family that has immigrated. And they're like, see, you could be like Jocelyn. Look how the, all the good things she's eating, like how much fun she's having here. You could just come back and then you could see us. <laughs> well, can I ask, because it sounds like each of you felt a little bit of dread telling your parents that you were deciding to move back to Taiwan, I can't help but wonder, was part of that dread because as you were growing up in America, you felt there was maybe some expectation to continue sort of realizing the American dream that they were pursuing when they decided to move from Taiwan to the U.S.? Did that ever weigh on you growing up? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can really see it from their perspective. You give up so much when you decide to move to another country. There are certain jobs you'll just never have. You'll never have the language ability, can't quite read signs, can't quite understand the cultural references. You never quite feel like you belong. They gave up a lot, psychically and emotionally, so the children can integrate, master English, be better, and, 
it's just a huge mental adjustment to be like, well, now my kids want to go back to the place that I left. Well, then why did I leave? You know, and, and none of this is articulated. This is, it's all below the surface. Totally. Do either of you relate to what Michelle just said, that pressure to sort of fulfill some promise, implicit promise to your parents? I don't know as much pressure, but I think now seeing my future here and articulating that to my family. Um, what that has done to especially my mom is I think re-emerged some of her suppressed longing for Taiwan that she had to kind of fully suppress to the back of her psyche while she was assimilating to the U.S. You know, kind of cut off some of the grief that she was feeling, which now in coming back, I've seen this resurfacing of her intense longing and nostalgia and love for this island that she's even considering retiring here. And so what I thought would be like, oh, maybe a pressure of, oh, I don't want to you know, disappoint them or change the course that our family has been on has actually, I think, been a reigniting spark for like our living situation to be open again, that we could move freely between Taiwan and the US and be like, both are home and that's okay. That's so beautiful. Well, thank you all so, so much. I so enjoyed talking to all of you. I've loved it so much, thank you. This was very fun. Thank you for having us. Thank Thanks for coming to Taiwan. That was Rosa Tsai Jacobs, Jocelyn Chung, and Michelle Kuo. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Modern-day tractors and combines are basically like computers on wheels. And for years, there's been a battle between farmers and manufacturers over who should have access to the information needed to repair them. Equipment manufacturers have made some concessions in order to avoid new laws, but some farmers say that's not enough. A new law in Colorado went into effect that allows farmers to repair their own equipment. And now Michigan is considering a similar proposal. Michigan Public's Lester Graham reports. About an hour south of Detroit, Mark Metz and his father farm 1,800 acres of corn, soybeans, and wheat. He says a computer error showed up on his dashboard and his tractor. With no access to information about the tractor software, he had no choice but to ask the dealership to send someone out to look at it. We deal with a dealer that's a little over an hour away, and of course you're paying for their road time, so I mean we pay a good two to two and a half hours of just road time just to get them here. The dealership's guy found it was just a wire that had come unplugged. He plugged it in. The initial bill for that repair was $800. Metz says had it been his truck, he could have taken it to a nearby auto parts store. Usually for free, you know, they'll bring out a computer and plug it in like, oh, yeah, yeah, you need this, you know, no big deal. Well, for us, there is no option for a third party, let alone ourselves, to plug into the computer system of the tractor and just say, you know, hey, it's just something simple. That's why Metz submitted testimony to the Michigan House Agriculture Committee supporting right-to-repair farm equipment legislation. There's a national right-to-repair movement. Several states have passed laws requiring service information about some products. Farm equipment has typically been excluded. Despite the growing movement, there's still opposition. Dave Worthams is with the Michigan Manufacturers Association. He says the groups pushing for the legislation don't understand what's at risk. The organizations really have this really big belief that once you buy a product, it should be your right to do whatever you want with that product. Well, that's not necessarily helpful in terms of safety or in, in terms of environmental controls. Farming equipment manufacturers like John Deere are also concerned about intellectual property rights. 
The American Farm Bureau Federation is the country's largest lobbying group for farmers and ranchers. It says it's reached an agreement with the farm equipment manufacturers. It's persuaded more than two-thirds of the manufacturers, including John Deere. A memorandum of understanding allows some access to tools and diagnostic software. In a statement, the Farm Bureau says its membership favored a private sector solution instead of a law. The group says the agreements, quote, have established a direct path for our members to reach a manufacturer to immediately resolve any repair issues that arise. Bob Thompson is with the Michigan Farmers Union. He says a memorandum of understanding is not enough. There's nothing binding if there's a disagreement. An MOU is nothing more than a gentleman's agreement between two parties, and you have one farm organization and one manufacturer, and either one of them can walk away from it on a heartbeat, and so then that leaves everybody else hanging. So now some lawmakers back making right to repair Michigan law. As the state considers legislation, the White House has already voiced support for a national right-to-repair law. The Biden administration says it would increase competition in repair markets and make it easier to repair everything from grills to motorcycles and, yes, big farm equipment. For NPR News, I'm Lester Graham in Ann Arbor, Michigan. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes here on All Things Considered, a two-star military general with Massachusetts ties whose bipolar disorder impacted his military career. He'll share his mission to help other troops and veterans know there is help and life after diagnosis with severe mental illness. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston. We'll have a mix of rain, some of it freezing rain, and snow for the evening commute. Then gradual clearing overnight. Lows will be around 20 degrees. Tomorrow looks sunny with temperatures in the upper 20s. A mix of clouds and sun on Thursday. Highs approaching 30 degrees that day. Then Friday nearing 30 again, and we might get a little more snow that day. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson. The classic Moby Dick story is told anew with captivating life-size and whale-size puppetry, January 23rd to 29th, artsemerson.org. I'm Deepar Fernandez. A community organizer in Ohio is helping formerly incarcerated people who feel powerless feel powerful by engaging in democracy. The first thing came to my mind was how is it more difficult to do right than it is to do wrong. Empowering voters who often face an uphill battle to transition back to society next time here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. For the first time in decades, the Baltimore Sun will be locally owned. The storied paper is shifting hands from a hedge fund to a local businessman. Yet the identity of that owner has stunned many people in the Sun newsroom and beyond. NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick once reported for the Baltimore Sun, and he joins us to talk about what's happening to the paper now. Hey, David. 
Hey, Juana. So, David, I got to tell you, I live in Baltimore, and this is one of the only things other than the Ravens that people in town seem to be talking about right now. There was this huge outcry in the city a couple years back when the hedge fund Alden Global Capital bought the Sun. How are people that you're talking to feeling about this turn? Sure. I mean, look, I worked for the Sun for more than a decade, but it has a really proud heritage going back to 1837. The story of the Sun, nonetheless, is kind of the story of modern American newspapering. Uh, Alden is the latest in a string of big corporate owners uh, that has, you know, time after time, decade after decade, whittled down or slashed its staffs and its ambitions. Uh, The paper has shrunk pretty sharply. uh, And Of late, Alden has said, look, we are willing to consider selling it to a benefactor. They say they've located it in the person of David D. Smith. Okay, who is David D. Smith? Tell us more about him. So he is the executive chairman of Sinclair Broadcast Group, which is based in Baltimore County. I actually reported on them for for a few years. They now own over 200 or control 200 plus television stations around the country. Uh, They've kind of centralized and consolidated a lot of the production of those stories, which means there's a homogenizing of them. But they've also been pulled strongly in a conservative direction. I don't think this is any accurate. Uh, David Smith has given a lot of money to Republican uh, candidates uh, over the years uh, and also to very conservative causes, including right-wing outlets like Project Veritas of those gotcha videos and Turning Point USA, which is really a far-right advocacy group. And this is just happening now, but do we have any sense of what David D. Smith, the new owner, wants to do with the Baltimore Sun? Well, let's be clear. He's buying it himself, uh, not with the shareholder money of Sinclair Broadcast Group. Uh, and in fact, he met he made that point when he met today, uh, this afternoon, in fact, for more than two hours with staffers of The Sun. It went quite a time. Uh, they left that meeting fairly on edge. Why do I say that? Well, he said he wanted to focus on local news. That sounds good. But he said two things. He said he doesn't really read the paper. He said he's only read it about four times, which is kind of astonishing huh. for a guy whose family has been there for more than a half century. Uh, And he also said that uh, it just isn't offering people news that is holding uh, local government actors accountable. This for a newspaper that, you know, revealed corruption by the then mayor of Baltimore that led to the Sun winning a Pulitzer just a few short years ago. I might add that he also intends to or he has also acquired a number of smaller papers around Maryland, such as the Annapolis Capitol and some others. So he really is going to have a stronghold along with the two television stations he owns there on a lot of reporting locally. And David, what does this change at The Sun, this new ownership, mean for the landscape of news in Baltimore and the surrounding area? Well, Smith told his new staffers that, you know, The Sun was profitable, but that he meant to make it more profitable, probably profitable on the back of a lot of those cuts. Uh, So the question is, is he going to invest or is he going to slash back further? Alden had been expected to actually diminish the size of staff even more than it's already been, but it hadn't done so to the extent thought uh, expected because the new Baltimore banner, a not-for-profit, sprung up and has provided tough competition. It was backed by a Maryland hotel magnate who had failed to be able to acquire The Sun itself. NPR's David Folkenflik, thank you as always. You bet. More shipping companies are steering clear of the Red Sea to avoid attacks by Houthi rebels. Last week's military strikes by the U.S. and Britain don't seem to have stopped those attacks. Houthis are now threatening to expand their campaign against commercial shipping in the region. NPR Scott Horsley is here to talk about the potential economic fallout. Hey, Scott. Hi, Ari. Another vessel was struck by a Houthi missile off the coast of Yemen today. No one was hurt. The vessel continued on its way. But how is this all affecting shippers' calculations? It is obviously a source of concern. Some companies have decided it's not worth the risk to take this Red Sea shortcut that connects Asia and Europe. Instead, they're going 
sailing the long way, sailing all the way around the southern tip of Africa. That keeps those vessels out of harm's way, but it takes about nine days longer than the route through the Red Sea and Suez Canal. Ben May, who's with Oxford Economics, says shipping costs on the affected routes have tripled, although the cost is still well below what it was back in 2021 during the peak of the pandemic supply chain crunch. If you've suddenly got ships that are taking many days longer to sort of complete their journey, it's going to obviously have ripple through effects, not only of delivering those goods later, but, but they're not at the place they were expected to be to sort of collect the next installment. Now, not everyone is opting for the longer, safer route. Uh, Chevron CEO told Bloomberg today his company has not changed its shipping operations. But the Wall Street Journal reports Shell has halted traffic in the Red Sea, and Maersk, the big container shipping company, took that step earlier this month. Have these higher shipping costs shown up yet at the gas pump or on store shelves? Not much. Right now, this is really a bigger problem for Europe than it is uh, for the United States. Again, the Red Sea offers a shortcut between European and Asian ports. And some companies like Tesla and Volvo have been forced to suspend some manufacturing operations in Europe because, say, car parts that ordinarily would have come by the Red Sea were held up. Ben May says the longer this drags on, the greater the risk those problems could multiply. One of the real uncertainties is whether those shortages are enough to, to cause a lot of disruption or it's the sort of thing that you know, firms can get by by running down their inventories of, of, of inputs. It's less of an issue in the U.S. Most of the goods that the U.S. imports from Asia come across the Pacific Ocean to ports on the West Coast. So those shipments don't have to go through the Red Sea. And it's not there's not as much cargo traffic anyway this time of year. We, we typically have a lull right after the holidays. We have seen some impact on global crude oil prices in response to the Houthi attacks, but not a whole lot. And retail gas prices in the U.S. have stayed pretty low. That sounds promising. Does that mean that this is not likely to hurt progress that we've seen on inflation? You know, I don't want to minimize it. The Red Sea is a very important shipping lane, so there are lots of people who have a stake in getting this resolved. Uh, Federal Reserve Governor Chris Waller was asked today at the Brookings Institution whether he thinks this is likely to reignite inflationary pressures. Waller said probably not. There are alternative routes to routing stuff. It doesn't have to go through the Red Sea. So now you're just talking about substitution, about where you're going to go and how you're going to do it. I don't see it potentially being a big, big impact on certain global or U.S. inflation, unless this thing, you know, spirals into something much more severe than it appears that it is right now. People in the shipping business are constantly making adjustments for all sorts of reasons. Uh, I will just note that another big maritime shortcut, the Panama Canal, is also seeing delays, at least through March, because of drought. Uh, there's limited water to float the vessels through the canal's locks. Mm. As a result, some shippers uh, were planning to bypass the Panama Canal and use the Red Sea Suez route instead to get from Asia to ports on the east coast of the United States. That obviously looks a lot less attractive now. And Pierre Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Mathnasium, who believes that every kid can be a math kid. Mathnasium offers customized math instruction intended to challenge advanced kids and help struggling kids get better. Learn more at mathnasium.com.
From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. After one year in office, Governor Maura Healey will deliver her first State of the Commonwealth address tomorrow night. Listen for live special coverage at 6.45 p.m. tomorrow here on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 wbua Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The day after former President Donald Trump won big in the Iowa caucus, his second defamation trial based on allegations from writer E. Jean Carroll got underway today. It's Tuesday, January 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a retired two-star general is on a mission to let veterans know there's help for bipolar disorder. It took General Greg Martin too long to find it. I was manic most of the year in Iraq. You know, felt like Superman, bulletproof, you know, pretty much fearless all over the battlefield. Plus, flight attendants spend lots of time getting people on planes. It's our most chaotic and the hardest time in our day, and we can have four or five boardings per day. Now unions are fighting to make sure they get paid for that time. It's 5.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. There were no major surprises in yesterday's Iowa presidential caucus voting. As expected, former President Donald Trump was the runaway winner, while Florida Governor Ron DeSantis finished in second and Nikki Haley was close behind in third. Now, NPR's Don Gagne says the real question is, can either DeSantis or Haley catch up to Trump? Here, it is this massive win for Trump. Yes, it allows DeSantis and Haley to go forward, but in terms of the path forward for them and how they could actually get the nomination, boy, it's a, it's a very narrow thing, and a lot of tumblers are going to have to line up in the exact right way for them. Another candidate, meanwhile, has decided on what direction he'll be taking. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson has become the latest to drop out of the race. As NPR's Elena Moore tells us, Hutchinson fared poorly in the Iowa caucuses yesterday. Hutchinson was never able to break through the GOP primary field. He failed to qualify for the last three Republican debates due to low polling and fundraising numbers. And last night in Iowa, he received less than 200 votes, which is just 0.2% of the total votes counted. The former Arkansas governor has been a longtime critic of former President Trump, and he entered the race as a more moderate option for conservative voters. But as he said in his statement, that, quote, did not sell in Iowa. 
Elena Moore, NPR News. Less than a day after placing third in Iowa's Republican presidential caucuses, Nikki Haley says she won't participate in Thursday's presidential debate unless former President Donald Trump also attends. Trump has refused to participate in any of the presidential debates held so far. Israel says a deal negotiated by Qatar will allow additional aid shipments into Gaza beginning tomorrow, including medicine for Israeli hostages. As NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, meanwhile, many people are now being forced to cram into makeshift shelters there. Fields of plastic mushrooms is the way Juliet Tuma describes the ballooning refugee camps in southern Gaza. Tuma is with the UN agency that oversees aid to the tiny strip of land which Israel began bombing in October following a Hamas attack. She just returned and says she witnessed Palestinians erecting makeshift shelters from plastic sheets, scraps of timber, and anything else they can find. I went into one of them, just tiny, 26 people lived there had nothing. Someone was sleeping on the concrete. The tight living and lack of sanitation creates conditions ripe for diseases like diarrhea. The UN warns that children are among the most vulnerable. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Stocks were down across the board today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down 231 points. The Nasdaq was down by 28 points, while the S&P 500 closed down 17 points. You're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Participants in the Medco program get higher MCAS scores and attend college at higher rates than their peers not in the program. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, those are some of the findings of a long-term study of the program which sends thousands of Boston children to learn in suburban schools each year. The study tracked 20,000 Boston students who applied to METCO over 20 years. By age 35, METCO participants were earning almost $24,000 more per year than other similar students. Lead researcher Elizabeth Setrin of Tufts University was struck by the program's effect on especially first-generation college students. Probably a key role in that is going to school in an environment where a large portion of their peers have their eyes set towards a four-year college, and it's more of an expectation in the school. The study found no negative effects on academics or discipline in the 33 participating districts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. State Attorney General Andrea Campbell is joining a multi-state coalition looking to stop the sale of military-grade ammunition used in a number of mass shootings. The group of state attorneys general says bullets produced by the Lake City Army Ammunition Plant were sold on the commercial market and used in the Buffalo supermarket shooting, the Uvalde school shooting, and others. The plant gets federal funding to make ammunition for the military and is overseen by the U.S. Army. The AGs want to make sure the ammunition isn't sold to civilians. Governor Healy announced a program today to expand preschool programs for low- and moderate-income families by 2026. The governor says the focus will be on the state's mid-sized cities that have struggled economically. The goal is to get to universal pre-K for every four-year-old in the state. That is the goal of our state. What we're going to work to do is that by the end of 2026, Every four-year-old in every gateway city in this state will have access to universal pre-K. Healy did not say how much the plan will cost. Her administration said it recently had to cut the state budget because new revenue growth is expected to be limited. Massachusetts has its first-ever chief information technology accessibility officer. 
Governor Healy's office announced the hiring of Ashley Bloom. Bloom's job will be to help make sure state websites are more accessible for people who are hard of hearing or who have vision difficulties or other disabilities. Massachusetts is just the fourth state nationwide with someone in this role. Well, it might be slow going out on the roads this evening with a blend of snow, rain, and freezing rain. Temperatures will dip to about 20 degrees. Skies will clear overnight and remain that way for a sunny day tomorrow. Highs will reach the upper 20s. Thursday should be partly sunny with temperatures around 30, and then there's a chance of a little bit of snow on Friday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Last night, former President Donald Trump won the Iowa caucus. And today, he sat in a Manhattan courtroom as a judge told potential jurors in a defamation case that Trump had already been found last summer to have sexually abused the writer E. Jean Carroll in the 1990s. This defamation trial could last three to five days, and Trump could end up paying Carol more than the $5 million that he was ordered to pay her last May. NPR's Andrea Bernstein was in court today and joins us now. Hey there. Hey, Wena. So, Andrea, tell us what it was like in court today. What did you see in here? So this is now the third trial I've been to where Trump or his company has been a defendant. But the first time that the president will be judged by a jury of his peers. So there was a real drama in the jury selection. There were the usual questions. Do you personally know the defendant, Donald Trump, or the plaintiff, E. Jean Carroll? But also the jurors were asked, have you been to a Trump rally? One person said yes. Do you believe that the 2020 election was stolen? A couple of prospective jurors raised their hands. Have you ever worked for the campaign of Obama, Clinton, or Joe? Biden. One of the prospective jurors said she'd made phone calls for Joe Biden in 2020. None of those people were selected, but President Trump, former President Trump, was in the courtroom and was really craning his neck and really scrutinizing the prospective jurors who were answering the questions. And as we mentioned, Trump was previously ordered to pay Carol $5 million. So this defamation case, what's at stake here? So this is the second of two trials. The first trial where Trump was found liable was over a statement that he made in 2022 where he called Carol a liar. That case was also about the existence of the assault under a New York law that uh, lasted for the year 2022, the Adult Survivors Act. This case is for an earlier incident in 2019 while Trump was president. For complex legal reasons, this one is just coming to trial. but. Stay with me. Because it was already established that Trump forced himself on E. Jean Carroll and that he lied about it, the only issue in this case is how much Trump will have to pay for calling her a liar, saying he didn't know her, and saying, quote, she's not my type. I understand that there were opening statements. What did the lawyers, both Carroll's and Trump's, have to say? Plaintiff's attorney Sean Crowley said, quote, of Donald Trump, he was the president. He used the world's biggest microphone to attack Ms. Carroll, to humiliate her. Everything that she said was a lie. Crowley said Trump supporters sent E. Jean Carroll rape threats after he made his statements about her and death threats and that Donald Trump had, quote, set them in motion. And Crowley said, quote, they should make Donald Trump to pay to make him stop. 
that, quote, his lies continue to this day, literally today. And indeed, while his case was going on, he posted 22 times on social media, again calling her a liar. Trump's lawyers, meanwhile, argue that Carol got what she wanted, more fame. Quote, she wants a windfall because on social media, some people said some mean things about her. And Andrew, as we mentioned, this trial could last from three to five days. So pitch us forward what happens tomorrow. So tomorrow we will hear from Eugene Carroll. She will talk about the effect, her lawyers say, of Trump's remarks on her career. The next witnesses that we'll hear from include her former editor-in-chief at Elle magazine, an expert witness on damages, and then will be the defense case, a friend of Eugene Carroll's, and most likely next Monday, former President Trump will testify in his own defense. NPR's Andrea Bernstein, thank you. Thank you. Bipolar disorder has less stigma than it used to as celebrities and politicians have spoken about their struggles with mental illness. That list of public figures now includes a retired two-star general who led troops in combat, and he's on a mission to let veterans know there is life after a bipolar diagnosis. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports. One of the biggest problems for General Greg Martin was that bipolar disorder seemed to help him at first. I was manic most of the year in Iraq, felt like Superman, bulletproof, pretty much fearless all over the battlefield. Martin deployed to Iraq in 2003 as a colonel in charge of an engineer brigade that paved the way from Kuwait to Baghdad. He led from the front aggressively and got almost nothing but praise. That's what the Army and other services, they want that, they prize it, they reward it. So it, it actually, the fact that I had a bipolar brain was a huge benefit for me. He pushed his troops with relentless positivity. He favored intense workouts over sleep. His mania fit right in with the American military mystique. And I thought that, you know, God was really rewarding me and giving me this strength and motivation and energy because I was on kind of a divine mission as an army officer. So it never occurred to me that there's something wrong with my brain. When deployment ended and Martin went home, he felt despondent. Martin says he told the nurse at a post-deployment health screening he was depressed. They said, what do you do to take care of yourself then with this condition? I said, well... I do lots of really intense physical activity, even though it's hard to do because I'm depressed. Um, I listen to really intense rock and roll music. I do, I repeat, you know, power verses from the Bible. And when, when that doesn't work, I drink. And, I, you know, I drink a lot, way more than I ever have in my life. And they said, well, that's, you know, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. Nothing wrong. This was 20 years ago, and the military has made a lot of changes around mental health. But troops may still be reluctant to open up, fearing it'll hurt their careers. That's one reason Martin has written a memoir called Bipolar General, My Forever War with Mental Illness. Experts in the field credit Martin with helping break down the military taboo on getting care. Some people tend to associate mental illnesses with a sign of weakness, right? So if you are in the military, you are supposed to project this this tough image. Dr. Alex Liao met General Martin when he gave the keynote speech at a medical conference. Dr. Liao is a PhD, MD, psychiatrist, and bioengineer who treats and studies bipolar. And she says people on the bipolar spectrum are often attracted by the way a military career rewards aggressive, daring behavior. But the intensity of war can ignite severe symptoms. There is almost like a double whammy effect. You know, you are attracting more people on the spectrum into the military, but also because of the stress, because of the uh, combat experiences, also more likely to trigger their uh, bipolar symptoms. 
which Martin says happened to him. Iraq triggered intense cycles from mania to depression, and it didn't stop there. Back in the U.S., he kept getting promoted. He took command of the U.S. Army War College in 2010 in the grip of delusions. My bipolar disorder had increased significantly since Iraq, and now it was pouring gasoline on the flames of a, of a very sick, mind, sick brain. I was the smartest person in the world. I believed that I was an apostle sent by God to transform the entire Department of Defense. In 2012, Martin became president of the National Defense University, NDU. But his extreme behavior was finally raising flags. He'd stride into a random classroom and just start lecturing. One of the NDU colleges actually took to posting a, like a sentry or a guard outside the door. And if I came into, if I was coming into the building, he was to notify the commandant immediately so he could take charge of me and divert me from going into a lecture hall. I mean, that's how bad it was. In 2014, he was summoned along with his wife by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Martin Dempsey. Dempsey was a friend. They'd worked together in Iraq and Germany. In fact, Dempsey was the one who had picked Greg Martin to lead NDU. And then General Dempsey, he said, uh, he walked across the office, gave me a big hug, said, Greg, I love you like a brother. You've done an unbelievable job. You have until 1,700 hours today to resign or I will fire you. And I'm ordering you to get a mental health evaluation this week at Walter Reed. His 36-year Army career was ending, but it still took two years of what Martin calls untreated bipolar hell to get well falling into the gap between military health care and the Veterans Health Administration. At the VA in New Hampshire, he finally got prescribed medications to treat his mania and depression. And that's the good news. Bipolar is treatable. People go on to live very productive, high-quality lives being treated for bipolar. Dr. Tamara Campbell directs the VA's Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. And we will meet you wherever you are. There is no reason for anyone in the country to suffer alone. And we want to treat you. We're here for you. The VA now treats over 130,000 vets per year for bipolar disorder. And since last year, a vet in crisis can get emergency care at any VA or non-VA facility free of charge. VA has increased its mental health staff by 54% in the past five years. But demand for mental health care is surging nationwide. And that means waiting about a month for a VA appointment, or nearly two months for private health care. Still, Dr. Campbell says the sooner vets get treated for bipolar, the better. And she thinks General Martin's willingness to speak publicly will help bring more people in. Martin knows that when his military career ended, he was in the grip of delusions. But one of them, he believes, has turned out to be true. God put me here to do big things. Nine years later, that's actually true, because what I'm doing in terms of mental health advocacy and telling my bipolar story is the most important thing I've ever done in my life. When he's done, Martin says, more civilians and veterans will see bipolar disorder like diabetes or heart disease as an illness with a treatment and no shame. Quill Lawrence, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for kicking off your evening with 90.9 WBUR. You can also find us on the WBUR app. Coming up in 15 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll look ahead to next week's New Hampshire primary. Republican presidential candidates hit the ground in the Granite State after former President Trump won by a big margin in last night's Iowa caucus. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. On Wall Street today, the Dow dipped 0.6 percent. The S&P lost just over one-third of a percent. NASDAQ dropped 0.2 percent. In local business news, Massachusetts' three casinos took in more than $103 million in revenue last month. That generated about $29 million in taxes for the state. Encore Boston Harbor in Everett was responsible for more than half of that. The state collected another $12 million in taxes from sports betting in December. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. Roads could be slick this evening. We'll have rain, some freezing rain, and some snow in places. Then skies will clear overnight with lows around 20 degrees. Tomorrow, temperatures will only get to the upper 20s, but there should be lots of sunshine. It'll get to about 30 degrees on Thursday with partly sunny skies. Around 30 again Friday, and we might get some more snow. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, With AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Missiles are flying into and out of Yemen today. The U.S. military is trying to put an end to attacks by Houthi fighters in Yemen who are targeting commercial ships in the Red Sea. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie is covering the story. Hey, Greg. Hi, Ari. What's the latest on these reports of renewed fighting in Yemen? Yeah, the U.S. Navy struck before dawn, and it says it destroyed four Houthi ballistic missiles that were intended for use against commercial ships in the Red Sea. Now, this information is coming from a U.S. defense official, and this marks the third such U.S. strike since last week. However, the U.S. official acknowledged that hours after the U.S. strike, the Houthis did manage to successfully launch a missile, and it hit a Greek-owned commercial ship. The ship suffered limited damage, none of the crew was hurt, the vessel remained seaworthy, and it carried on with its journey in the Red Sea. Right now, the U.S. and the Houthis are firing these missiles at some distance from each other. What's the risk of escalation? Well, there clearly are risks, and we got a sense of that today from a separate incident. Uh, We're just getting the details today, but last Thursday, uh, the U.S. Navy forces staged a nighttime raid, and they boarded a sailing ship, a dhow, uh, in the waters off the coast of Somalia. The U.S. military says it found components for ballistic missiles and cruise missiles made by Iran and headed for the Houthis in Yemen. And during this operation, one U.S. Navy SEAL fell into the rough waters. Another jumped in and tried to save him. Uh, This is according to U.S. military officials who say that both of those Navy SEALs are still missing. Hmm. 
is there any evidence that these strikes by the U.S. and the U.K. have deterred the Houthis in the few days since they started? Yeah, Ari, it's, it's just too early to tell right now. The U.S. and Britain did carry out this first round of strikes uh, early Friday, and it was a very heavy round of strikes. The hope was the Houthis would get the message and would stop attacking commercial ships that are traveling through this very critical sea lane. Now, the Houthis have been doing this for two months. They say it's a show of solidarity with the Palestinians facing Israeli attacks in Gaza. Um, the U.S. says the Houthis have lost some of their abilities to carry out these attacks in, in the past few days. But clearly, the Houthis still have capacity to carry out missile launches. And we just can't tell at this juncture whether the U.S. campaign will uh, force them to stop. Yemen is a poor country. It's been in a civil war for years. It has a lot of domestic problems. How are the Houthis getting this sustained supply of missiles that allows them to disrupt international shipping? All right. The one word answer is Iran. Uh, Iran supported the Houthis for years during the civil war you mentioned. This helped the Houthis emerge as the strongest military force in Yemen. Um, the U.S. says Iran is now supplying the Houthis with weapons and intelligence to carry out these attacks. And Iran has this proxy network that it supports throughout the region. It also includes Hamas, which is fighting the Israelis in Gaza, and Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is also trading fire with Israel. Iran helps all these groups fight, fight, and by design, Iran rarely gets directly involved itself. That is NPR's Greg Myrie. Thanks, Greg. Sure thing, Ari. After months of delays, the Emmys were finally handed out last night in Los Angeles. The Emmy goes to the And the Emmy goes to succession. And the Emmy goes to beef. It has been a historic and strange season of ups and downs, plot twists even for the TV industry, dual strikes, streaming consolidation, layoffs. But as NPR critic Linda Holmes wrote in her rundown of last night, the Emmy winners themselves were hardly surprising. Hi, Linda. Hi, Juana. So, Linda, you shared your biggest takeaways from last night's Emmys in an essay from for NPR.org. So let's start there. This was a night that was dominated by the predictable and the front runners. Say more about that. Yeah, most of the drama awards went to Succession from HBO. That's the story about a family media empire. Most of the comedy awards went to The Bear, which is an FX show about a chef who takes over his family's sandwich shop. Uh, those are both critical favorites. They both were expected to win a lot, and they did. The same goes for Beef, which is a Netflix show about feuding strangers that won most of the limited series prizes. And you had seen a lot of the same winners at the Golden Globes and at the Critics' Choice Awards. And because the Emmys, uh, as you mentioned, were delayed from September to now by the strikes, all three of these ceremonies ended up being within about a 10-day period. So I think that contributed to the sense that it was all a little expected. Okay, so given all that, was there anything that was unexpected, anything that actually surprised you last night? Well, the only really surprising thing was a little disappointing. Um, you know, Better Call Saul, the Breaking Bad spinoff that earned 53 nominations over six seasons and is now over, never won a single Emmy. Last wow. last night was its last chance. And I love Succession as much as anybody, but a lot of good shows won nothing on, on Monday night. Uh, Barry, The Last of Us, uh, Ted Lasso 
when a few shows go very big, there are a lot that aren't recognized. So, I mean, Succession, The Bear, Beef, they all dominated, as you mentioned, Better Call Saul got nothing. Any other big moments that we might have missed hearing about? Well, one piece of news was that uh, Elton John won for his concert special, and that completed his EGOT. That's uh, winning an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony, as I'm sure you know. But mm -hmm. there were some other winners uh, outside of those shows. Quinta Brunson won for Abbott Elementary, which was great. Uh, Niecy Nash Betts won for her work in the Netflix series about Jeffrey Dahmer called Dahmer Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer Story. And regardless of how you feel about, about that particular show, she gave a really marvelous speech. And you know who I want to thank? I want to thank me. <laughs> for believing in me and doing what they said I could not do. And I want to say to myself in front of all you beautiful people, go on, girl, with your bad self. You did that. Love this. Love a woman who thanks herself, first of all. But Linda, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. let's now talk about the telecast itself. Hosting these shows is really hard, as we were all reminded with this yeah. year's Golden Globes and the seemingly unanimous thumbs down for comedian Joe Coy. How did the Emmys work out with actor Anthony Anderson at the lead? Well, he was a very traditional host rather than a comedian. Uh, it is a really hard gig, I want to say. He, you know, he introduced things. He was part of a bunch of segments that they did that celebrated that this was the 75th Emmys. There were cast reunions for a bunch of shows like Grey's Anatomy and Martin. They brought out three different women who are 90 or older, which I loved. Uh, Carol Burnett, Marla Gibbs, and Joan Collins. So, you know, Arsenio Hall. There was a lot to like. I mean, those are some pretty incredible reunions. I will have to check those out later. Do you think they actually worked? I do think it worked. It's a tough balance, but I think once they got going, they were on the right track. You have to grade, grade uh, award shows on a little bit of a curve, and the, the reunions were fun. I give them a pretty good, pretty good mark for that ceremony. NPR's Linda Holmes, also the co-host of Pop Culture Happy Hour. You can read the full list of her takeaways from last night's 75th anniversary edition of the Emmy Awards at NPR.org. Linda, thank you. Thank you, Anna. This is NPR News. And you're listening to WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, you know all that time flight attendants spend getting you and your carry-on settled on a plane? You might be surprised that they usually aren't getting paid for that time the plane is on the ground. We'll tell you how unions are trying to change that. We'll see a blend of rain, some freezing rain, and snow in some areas this evening. Then it will be dry with skies clearing and temperatures dipping to about 20. Tomorrow will be bright and sunny, highs in the upper 20s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. A case before the Supreme Court that started with a group of New Jersey fishermen could have a far-reaching effect on federal regulations, a rule that dates back to a 1984 case involving the energy giant Chevron and the Environmental Protection Agency could be upended, weakening the power of federal agencies. We'll examine the potential impact of the case tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. 
It's been more than 100 days since the Israel-Hamas war erupted in Gaza after the militant group launched a surprise attack on Israel, killing 1,200 Israelis. Since then, more than 24,000 Palestinians have died in retaliation today. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby told reporters that the top priority now is to get the remaining hostages out of the region. Brett McGurk was in Doha this week, focused specifically on the hostage situation uh, and in trying to move forward new proposals to bring them home. Uh, This will remain a top priority for us. Today, about 50 to 100 pro-Palestinian protesters were arrested on Capitol Hill after police there said they wouldn't leave from inside the Cannon Rotunda. In Utah, the state legislature reconvened today amid mounting pressure to enforce tougher laws to save the Great Salt Lake. NPR's Kirk Sigler tells us Utah doctors have sent a letter warning the lake will dry up in the next few years if no action is taken. Utah lawmakers have been passing bills aimed at preserving more water in the giant saline lake, but conservation groups like Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment say a more aggressive crackdown on upstream diversions that feed it is needed. The letter signed by 300 doctors warns about health risks if the lake continues to dry up. Dust storms that blow toxic sediments into already polluted neighborhoods on the west side of Salt Lake City have worsened in recent years. Last year, conservationists sued the state over the continued water diversions upstream of the desert lake by alfalfa farmers. Utah's governor has pledged the lake that everything from the mining to the ski industry depends on won't dry up on his watch. Kirk Sigler, NPR News. Well, following the long holiday weekend, stocks finished lower on Wall Street today. The Dow lost 231 points, down about six-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Governor Maura Healey has announced a plan to include about $114 million in new child care spending in the 2025 state budget. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, the proposal includes an expansion of a child care subsidy program. Right now, the Child Care Financial Assistance Program is only open to families who make 50 percent or less of the state median income. Healy wants to increase that eligibility cutoff to include families making 85 percent. Early education advocates are praising the move. Lauren Kennedy is the co-president of Neighborhood Villages. I think what the governor and the lieutenant governor really signaled today is their commitment to early education being education, to finally, right, sort of saying, we're going to start making the investments, demonstrating that early education is a public good. Healy's early education investment proposal also includes a plan to expand universal preschool. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The state-run facility for veterans in Chelsea is getting a new leader. It was announced today that Christine Baldini will become superintendent of the new Chelsea Veterans Home. The Executive Office of Veteran Services says Baldini has 25 years of experience managing nursing homes. The new facility opened in October. The women's beanpot ice hockey tournament is underway. Right now, Boston College and Boston University are tied 2-2 after the second period. And for the first time ever, the championship game will be played at TD Garden. Mary Champa is founder of Women X, a group formed to shine a light on women who are trailblazers. She says it's thrilling for the women's teams to play in an NHL arena. It's an exciting place to compete. And for these college athletes to have that opportunity is incredible for them. Many of them go off to play pro, and now there's a new league has kicked off. And it's exciting. They have opportunities to play professionally. Champa says raising the women's beanpot banner to the TD Garden rafters will honor the women who came before the current group. 
The championship and consolation games will be at the Garden next Tuesday night. We'll have a mix of rain, some of it freezing rain, and snow for the evening commute. Then gradual clearing overnight. Lows will be around 20 degrees. Tomorrow looks sunny with temperatures in the upper 20s. A mix of clouds and sun on Thursday. Highs approaching 30 degrees that day. Then Friday nearing 30 again and we might get some more snow. It's 32 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. After former President Donald Trump's decisive victory in Iowa's caucus, candidates for the Republican nomination are on to New Hampshire, which holds its primary next week. NPR's Sarah McCammon is in Bretton Woods up in northern New Hampshire. That's where former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is campaigning. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Ari. Where do things stand one day after Iowa? Well, as usual after Iowa, it is all eyes on New Hampshire, which, by the way, is cold and snowy just like Iowa this time of year. Yeah. Uh, you know, Donald Trump's double-digit victory in Iowa it makes it difficult for any of his remaining rivals for the Republican nomination to label him as, as weak. Last night, we saw Vivek Ramaswamy drop out and throw his support behind Trump. And these results leave Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, you know, where they were before Iowa, really, which was vying for second place. I know it's cold and snowy, but it sounds like you're in a disco inferno. Um, what what arguments <laughs> are DeSantis and Haley making there in New Hampshire? Well, f- former uh, South Carolina Nikki Haley's campaign had hoped for a second place finish in Iowa that she could point to as evidence that she is best positioned to take on Trump. She did not get that. But, you know, her campaign nonetheless released a digital ad this morning going after Trump and President Biden and saying that Haley offers a better choice than either of them. That ad did not mention Ron DeSantis, who did finish second. And that gives him some room to stay in the race, and it makes Haley's argument a little bit more challenging. Now, DeSantis started his day not here in New Hampshire, but in Haley's home state of South Carolina with an event in Greenville. That, by the way, Ari, is home to the evangelical college, Bob Jones University. It's a conservative part of the state. DeSantis has been trying to win over those conservative voters who've continued to support Trump in large numbers. Here's DeSantis speaking this morning. We wanted to be here. Uh, you know, Nikki Haley, this is her home state. You know, if she can't win this, then I don't see, you know, how she could say she's going to win, you know, on Super Tuesday or any of those other uh, states. Now, to be clear, it was a distant second place finish for DeSantis after Trump, and Haley was not far behind him in third in Iowa, a state where DeSantis had invested a lot of time and effort and made a really big push with the white evangelical base. But now it's on to states where Haley is on more solid ground, first here in New Hampshire, where I am, and also her home state of South Carolina, which uh, votes next month. What is Haley's strategy in New Hampshire? 
Well, I heard from Haley's Iowa campaign co-chair this morning, and she said she thinks, you know, this close third-place finish in Iowa will give Haley momentum going into new, the New Hampshire primary. She pointed out that Haley has spent a lot of time campaigning here and has been gaining on Trump in New Hampshire polls. Some of those have Haley within single digits of Trump. Whereas DeSantis has been pulling, you know, single digits here and invested, as we said, much more heavily in Iowa. Last night in Iowa, I spoke to some of Haley's supporters at her caucus night headquarters while results were coming in. Molly Topf of Windsor Heights outside Des Moines had just come from caucusing for Haley, and she said she considers Trump an extremist and hopes that Haley can build momentum as she moves on here to New Hampshire. We've got a big country. We've got a lot of people to come out still. I mean, I, obviously it's an indicator, but it's not over till it's over. Now, New Hampshire Republicans tend to be more moderate relative to the party base, and candidates like Haley do tend to do well here, so that's part of the reason she's invested so heavily. As, as for whether you'll see Haley or Trump or DeSantis, for that matter, on a debate stage anytime soon, the answer appears to be no. Haley is refusing to debate if Trump doesn't appear, and of course, so far, he's refused to appear in all of the primary debates. DeSantis hasn't qualified for the New Hampshire debate. Still, all three of them, Haley as well as DeSantis and Trump, have several New Hampshire events on the calendar this week, beginning, as you can hear, tonight. NPR's Sarah McCammon at that Haley campaign event in New Hampshire. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Ari. Iran has attacked the home of a leading businessman in the capital of Iraq's Kurdistan region. The strike is stoking fears of a widening regional conflict as the war between Israel and Hamas continues too. Iran claimed the seven missiles were aimed at a base for Israeli spy operations, a charge the Kurdish and Iraqi governments deny. NPR's Jane Araf has more on the fallout of the attack. The Kurdish city of Erbil is generally known as the safest city in Iraq, a place that bills itself to Americans and others as being open for business. Fueled by oil deals, the city is the most prosperous in the country. Dotted with high-end restaurants and luxury high-rises, late on Monday, Iranian missiles targeted the home of one of the main construction magnates behind that building boom, killing him and three other people including his 11-month-old daughter and another prominent Kurdish-Iraqi business leader. The prime minister of the Kurdistan region, Masrur Barzani, speaking on the sidelines of the World Economic Summit in Davos, Switzerland, said he was shocked by the attack. What's surprising, we are not a part of this conflict. We don't know why Iran is retaliating against civilians of Kurdistan, especially in Erbil. Iran accuses the Kurdistan region of selling oil to Israel. Iraq doesn't recognize Israel, and the Kurds deny the oil deals. The U.S. condemned what it called the reckless airstrikes. In Davos, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken sat down with Barzani to discuss the attack. It's uh, been a challenging time for everyone. A challenging time for everyone. The missile strike killed Peshraud Diazi, the businessman behind Empire World, a multi-billion dollar residential complex whose firm was also involved in the oil industry. The U.S. said the missiles struck in the area of its consulate and a U.S. military base, but made clear they were not the targets. The United States is facing new calls in Iraq to remove its remaining military forces, but the Kurdish leadership wants them to stay. Iraq's government is allied with Iran. 
And the Prime Minister, Mohamed Shia Sudani, owes his job to Iran-backed parties, but government leaders are furious over the attack. Iraq's National Security Advisor, Qasem al-Araji, the commander of one of the biggest Iran-backed groups, toured the site of the attack and told reporters there was no basis to Iran's claim that it was a spy base. So what could make this worse? Retaliation by Kurdish security forces and or U.S. forces based in Erbil. I spoke with former Iraqi President Barham Saleh, who himself is a Kurdish politician. He says he doesn't see an armed response from the KRG, the Kurdistan regional government. I think the KRG, and for that matter, the government of Iraq may not be in in a position uh, and is not well advised to do, uh, to seek military confrontation and seek military response. He said that would risk dragging Iraq into wider conflict as it tries to balance ties with Iran and the United States. I mean, it's a one thing that one has to say about Iraq is never black and white. In Iraq, with so many players and so much smoldering beneath the surface, the Iraqi government and the U.S. will need to contain this latest crisis to avoid a widening conflict. Jane Araf, NPR News, Amman, Jordan. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. When passengers board airlines with the help of flight attendants, many of those attendants are not being paid for their time. Most don't begin receiving an hourly wage until you hear them say, the aircraft doors are now closed. It's a long-standing practice they want to change. NPR's Andrea Shu reports. For flight attendants, clocking in and clocking out is not so straightforward. So we have a lot of time in our days that we are unpaid. Julie Hedrick is a flight attendant for American and president of the flight attendants union there. That unpaid time, she says, includes all the hours they spend sitting around in airports waiting for their next flight and all the hours spent getting people and their bags on board and in their seats. It's our most chaotic and the hardest time in our day and we can have four or five boardings per day. Flight attendants across airlines say in recent years, things have only gotten worse. Here's Sarah Nelson, president of the largest flight attendants union, representing workers at United, Alaska, and other airlines. Every flight is full. Boarding time is much more hectic. There's fewer flight attendants doing that work. Now, the airlines will argue those hours on the ground are in fact compensated. Alaska says on its website, Contrary to union narratives, we do pay flight attendants for boarding time. I asked Sarah Nelson about that. She says in years past, the union fought for and the airlines agreed to guarantees of minimum pay. Very common today would be one hour of flight time for every two hours on duty. So a simplified example, if you get to the airport early in the morning for your first flight and finish up your day 12 hours later, you are guaranteed six hours of pay, even if you're not in the air for six hours. But Nelson says... That no longer flies because of the way that the flying has changed. 
not only are flights more often full, planes have been configured to pack in more seats. Unruly passengers are on the rise. And since 9-11, flight attendants have served as the last line of defense in aviation security. These are significant duties that we have to perform in addition to keeping everybody calm on board. Including during emergencies, as we just saw on that Alaska flight when a panel flew off the plane, leaving a gaping hole. Now, there is one major airline that does pay for boarding time. In 2022, Delta began paying its flight attendants at half their hourly rate. Sarah Nelson says that's not enough. No, absolutely not. Over at American, Julie Hedrick says the union and the airline have agreed on boarding pay similar to Delta's, though they're still pushing on other issues. All of us, of course, feel that we should be paid from the minute that we report to work until we go home, but we have to look at the entire package. Including wages, her union is pushing for an immediate 33% raise. American has offered 11%. To draw attention to the broader fight, flight attendants have planned a global picket next month, but don't expect a strike anytime soon. That's because under federal law, it's illegal for airline workers to strike unless they get permission from the federal government. Americans' flight attendants recently asked for that permission and were denied, a frustration for Hedrick given the wave of labor actions last year. UAW, UPS, Writers Guild, the Actors Guild, and not that they've all gone on strike, but they've pushed it to that point and they've been able to get the contracts that they deserve. For now, negotiations continue. The airlines say they have offered flight attendants competitive wages and benefits and look forward to further talks. Andrea Shu, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, life in an Israeli resort town in the midst of the Israel-Hamas war. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. After one year in office, Governor Maura Healey will deliver her first State of the Commonwealth address tomorrow night. Listen for live special coverage at 6.45 tomorrow here on 90.9 WBUR and the WBUR app. Taking a look at the forecast, there's a light rain-snow mix right now in the Boston area. That includes some freezing rain. Temperatures will dip to about 20 degrees overnight. And skies will clear and remain that way for a sunny day tomorrow. Highs will reach the upper 20s. Thursday should be partly sunny with temperatures around 30. Then there's a chance of more snow on Friday with highs approaching 30 again. Right now, it is 32 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Here's another tip from our field guide to Boston. One of the perks of living here is that the greater Boston area has a lot of old-fashioned independent movie houses. There's the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, the Somerville Theater in Davis Square in Somerville, and the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square, which is in Cambridge. The theaters show both mainstream and art cinema, as well as host a number of screenings for local film festivals. For more on the indie movie theater scene here and for other tips about navigating Boston, head to WBUR.org slash Field Guide. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. In Nigeria, stories of kidnappings for ransom fill the news on a daily basis. Kidnappings by armed gangs are so frequent that many families don't even report them to police for fear of reprisals and a lack of faith that it will help. But the kidnapping of six sisters and the subsequent murder of one of them has seized the headlines in Nigeria. In Paris, Emmanuel Akenwotu is in Lagos. Hi there. Hi, Wana. Emmanuel, if you can, tell us a little bit more about this case. Well, there are so many bleak details. You know, a family including a father and his six daughters, they were kidnapped on January 2nd. The abductors then demanded a ransom of about 10,000 US dollars, just a huge amount for an ordinary family. Um, actually, the family thought they'd done what was asked. They thought they'd raised the funds and were hoping to rescue their, their children. Actually, what they found out is one of their daughters, Nabiha, who is a university student, was shot dead and left at the side of the road. The kidnappers then raised the ransom fee by several times that amount and have clearly exploited basically the high-profile nature of this case. It's really ignited anger across Nigeria because there's been essentially an epidemic of kidnapping over the last three, four years that many people have just grown desensitized to. You know, thousands of people have been kidnapped. In the year to last June, 3,600 people were abducted, according to one group. And most of these people are in rural parts of the country, poor parts of Nigeria, where policing has more or less completely collapsed. I've been speaking to Confidence Isaiah Makari. He's a security analyst at a firm called SBM. He told me that in Nigeria, kidnappers have become so brazen. Let's hear what he has to say. Kidnappers are now much more emboldened that they no longer just hold on to victims when ransoms are paid. They now also hold the ransom bearers. And for the past year, we've seen these incidents where people who go to pay ransom are also held and the ransom is demanded on their behalf also. And I mean, it's remarkable what he's saying there, that they're not just holding on to victims when these ransoms are paid. They are now also holding the people who pay these ransoms. I mean, Emmanuel, as we mentioned earlier, kidnapping for ransom is frequent in Nigeria. But what is it about this case that makes it stand out? Well, it's the fact that it's six young women and girls, you know, students with their futures ahead of them who were abducted in this way at the beginning of the year. It's also the fact that it's happened so close to the capital, Abuja, and the desperation of relatives and friends who are having to raise money on social media, you know, which is one of the reasons why this case has been so striking, as again, confidence from SBM explains. The fact that this has been crowdfunded on social media, because uh, on Nigerian Twitter, people crowdfund for a lot of things, for school fees, uh, for hospital bills, but this is the first time people are crowdfunding for a ransom. For many people, this is Nigeria sinking into new lows that they didn't think was possible. And Emmanuel, tell us, how has the government and law enforcement authorities, how have they been responding to all of this? Kidnappings have become so common now that it often doesn't even really lead to a political response. But such is the anger in Nigeria that it's it's forced some sense of response from security, from politicians. You know, we've had the usual platitudes, uh, promises to rescue the girls, but so far it hasn't amounted to much. President Tinubu, he came to power mid last year and he promised to tackle insecurity, promised reforms, but the fact is that hasn't happened. And people in Nigeria have come to the conclusion that they simply can't rely on the government to protect them. NPR's Emmanuel Akenwotu in Lagos, Nigeria. Emmanuel, thank you. Thanks, Wana. 
Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Justin Horner. In 2010, Horner was driving down a busy freeway in Portland, Oregon, when his tire blew out. After several hours, a van pulled up. Out came a family of four. They were Latino, and their young daughter translated between her parents' Spanish and Horner's English while they fixed his car. When they finished, the mom pulled out a big jug of water. And we were able to wash our hands, and I just thanked them and thanked them and thanked them. And I tried to give her money. I only had a $20 bill, and I just thought, you know, it's the least I could do. And she just wouldn't take it. But I I was really adamant about giving them this money. I eventually just kind of put it in her hand. And I just said, you know, there's no way I'm taking this money. And, and And I kind of walked away. And it was when I walked away that their little girl called out and she asked me if I was hungry. And in fact, I was starving. I was on my way to lunch when I had the the blowout. And she brought me a tamale from their cooler and thanked me and I thanked her and she jumped in the car and they just took off. And as they're trying to get into traffic, I unwrap the tamale and my my money is in the tamale. Like, they had unwrapped the tamale, they'd put the 20 in, and then they'd wrapped it back up. And I just immediately get out of the car, and I run up to the van. He's still trying to get into traffic, and he rolls down his window. He sees me coming, and he's just shaking his head. And I'm, I'm just, I keep saying, like, por favor, por favor. Like, I'm holding the bill out. And he just kind of puts his hand up, and he just, you know, with this big smile on his face, he just says, today you tomorrow me and gave me a wave and he rolled up the window and drove onto the road and took off the last thing I saw was his daughter in the back just waving goodbye and I never saw him again it's weird it's it it just seemed like some you know chicken soup for the soul kind of thing right today you tomorrow me like it could have been you it could have been me but when you start taking it apart it's it's kind of big I think at the end of the day it just shows you that everyone can be vulnerable in a given situation and that everybody needs help Justin Horner lives in Troy Montana and you can find more stories like this one on the my unsung hero podcast Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits. At Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. And we're glad you're spending part of your evening with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Former WBUR anchor Jack Lepiars returns to City Space as Jacques Zewipper for two shows, January 26th and 27th. The shows will blend circus and stand-up comedy. Join us. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. After former President Donald Trump won the Iowa caucus by a wide margin, Ron DeSantis is seeing positives in his second place finish. In spite of all of that that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. It's Tuesday, January 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. We'll have Iowa takeaways coming up. Plus, we'll visit a resort town in southern Israel where lots of displaced Israelis are staying during the war. And insight into how the new Patriots head coach, Gerard Mayo, will approach leading the team that was coached by Bill Belichick for 24 years. And the rocket man shoots to the top with an EGOT, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony, after capturing the E last night. It's 6.01, First This News. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. The top Republican presidential candidates are heading to New Hampshire after last night's Iowa caucuses, but as NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben reports, they didn't all go straight to the Granite States. After his victory speech Monday night, former President Donald Trump went to New York for the opening of the defamation case brought by the writer E. Jean Carroll, who has accused him of rape. In an earlier case, a jury already found that Trump had sexually abused Carroll. Trump will hold a rally tonight in the town of Atkinson, New Hampshire, and tomorrow in Portsmouth. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is also holding rallies here today and tomorrow, hoping for a strong finish against Trump. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis went straight to Haley's home state of South Carolina for campaign events today. He and Haley have been battling for the non-Trump vote for months. He will then pivot to hold New Hampshire events today and tomorrow. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News, Manchester, New Hampshire. ABC, meanwhile, has canceled the Republican presidential primary debate scheduled for this Thursday because of what they say is a lack of participation. Former President Donald Trump has not attended a single debate in this cycle, and Nikki Haley said today she would not attend if Trump doesn't. 
Following the withdrawal of thousands of Israeli soldiers from northern Gaza, Israel's defense minister says operations in southern Gaza will soon be scaled back as well. But he's ruling out a ceasefire, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Tel Aviv. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant says his troops have gone from defense to attack in Gaza and that a new phase is coming. He did not give a timeline. He told reporters only pockets of resistance remain in northern Gaza. In the center of the strip, Israeli troops are destroying weapon production centers, he said. And in the south, they're hunting what he called the head of the snake, Hamas leaders. The Biden administration has been pushing its ally Israel to be more mindful of civilian casualties. But there are no signs of attacks abating. In the past 24 hours, health officials in Gaza say more than 150 people have been killed by Israeli bombardment. And Israel says militants launched 25 rockets from Gaza, damaging a store in southern Israel. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. More families could see a big child tax credit under a proposed deal in Congress, as NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports. It's part of a wider package that still needs approval by the full House and Senate. The bipartisan deal by top lawmakers would expand the child credit for millions of very low-income families. That's key because the current credit is limited for those who need it most. Still, the expansion would not be as large as the one in 2021, which briefly cut child poverty in half. And it would be temporary, lasting three years. The wider deal would also extend business tax breaks, among other things, and its chance of passage is not clear. For families to get a bigger child tax credit this year, Congress would need to pass the deal this month. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Boston College is extending the suspension of its swimming and diving program through August. The move follows a hazing incident in September. BC's athletics director, Blake James, says an internal investigation found recurring issues with the program. Blake says the culture on the swimming and diving teams conflicts with the expectations the university has for its student-athletes. He also says two coaches and two assistants are no longer with the program. An immigrant support group that hosted an event in Melrose is denouncing negative social media posts and emails aimed at the organization. Paul Belfonte, president of Immigrant Support Alliance, says the responses came after his group posted information for people looking to host a newly arrived immigrant. Belfonte says the negative rhetoric even made it on the Laura Ingram show on Fox, which showed a flyer about the event. With her scornful, condescending tone, it was basically like, are you kidding me? The timing of that exactly coincided when a lot of the really harsh invectives started coming through on these emails. Belfonte says the immigrants they're helping are in the U.S. legally and have been vetted by the federal government. The governor's office has appointed two people to lead efforts to connect new arrivals in the state to work opportunities. Ken Brown has been appointed Assistant Secretary of Employer Engagement and Employment Outcomes. He will oversee hiring and job placement for migrants with legal work authorization. Sarah Joseph will be director of community engagement for the state. She'll connect migrants with employers and help address things including language barriers and skill development. A study released today shows students who participated in METCO scored higher on standardized tests than their peers who did not participate in the voluntary desegregation busing program. The study out of Tufts University also showed METCO students over the past 30 years had better attendance and were more likely to go to a four-year college. The students had lower dropout and higher graduation rates compared to students not in the program. 
Today's wintry weather mix continues for this evening's commute. The State Department of Transportation says crews are working to treat area roads and highways. National Weather Service meteorologist Kyle Peterson says the roads could become treacherous with the mix of sleet and freezing rain. If pavement is wet and untreated, it could become uh, frozen. You know, you could get some black ice in there. So it could be slippery out this evening, especially the later we get into the evening. NWBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce tells us what we can expect the rest of tonight and beyond. We've been dealing with rain mixed with sleet and snow well inland now. The rain snow line going to collapse farther east over the course of early evening. Everything winding down 6 to 8 p.m. Additional snow would be generally outside of 495, coating to an inch or two there. Otherwise, things are going to ice up this evening as tonight as the temperature drops into the teens and 20s. Sun's back tomorrow, but we don't get out of the upper 20s. And then the next storm, Thursday night into Friday, right now looks like it's taking a little farther track offshore, so we may get grazed with to just a little bit of light snow. We'll keep you posted. And it's 32 degrees in Boston right now. In sports, the women's hockey bean pot is underway. Right now, Boston University leads Boston College 3-2 in the third period. Tonight, Northeastern plays Harvard. Today's games are at Harvard's home arena in Alston. But the women's championship and consolation games will take place at TD Garden for the first time ever. Those games will be next Tuesday evening. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Coming up, how Israel's war with Hamas is affecting the economy of one southern Israeli resort town. That's in a few minutes. First, after a year of campaigning, after more than $120 bucks in ad spending in Iowa, the caucuses have come and gone. And the result was what everyone pretty much expected. Former President Donald Trump won in a landslide. Well, this is a very special night, and this is the first because the big night is going to be in November when we take back our country, and truly, we do make our country great again. Thank you very much. So what's it all mean? For that, we turn to NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey there, Domenico. Hey, Mary Louise. The Associated Press made a swift call, made quite an early call last night, and the call was that Trump had an insurmountable lead. What stood out to you about last night? Well, surprises can happen in politics, and we should prepare ourselves for those, but this result was not one of them. I mean, I was surprised, though, at how quickly the race was called. I mean, just half an hour after voting began, AP and other networks were able to do that because of the overwhelming lead that Trump had in the entrance polls that were taken throughout the state, and then that matched some key precincts, and that's all that was really needed for them to have that kind of confidence level. In the end, it was Trump with more than 50% of the vote, exactly what polling had shown for months and months. And then in second place, admittedly a distant, far behind Trump second place, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. What does this mean for his campaign? Well, DeSantis eked out second place over Nikki Haley, the former Trump UN ambassador, and that means he's using that as a reason to keep going. You helped us get a ticket punched out of the Hawkeye State. We have a lot of work to do, but I can tell you this, as the next president of the United States, I am going to get the job done for this country. 
you know, this is only going to prolong a three-person race, which would only help Trump. You know, in all honesty, a path to the nomination for DeSantis looks all but closed off. I mean, he finished 30 points behind Trump. That's more than double the largest margin of victory in Iowa caucus history. You know, DeSantis was trying to sell himself to conservatives as Trump without the baggage, Trump light. But at least in Iowa, Republican caucus goers said they preferred the original. And what about for Nikki Haley? Where does last night leave her? I mean, she missed a real opportunity to nudge DeSantis out of the race and make this really a two-person race. You know, polls have shown her trending up. The super PAC supporting her opened the spigot in Iowa in the last couple of weeks, really trying to win there. Um, And she just missed finishing a couple points behind DeSantis. Here she was last night making the argument to voters that Trump and Biden are unpopular and that the country should try something new. The question before Americans is now very clear. Do you want more of the same? Or do you want a new generation of conservative leadership? You know, really, I think the question is whether Republican base voters will buy that message. She tried to frame this as a two-person race going forward last night, but it's really hard to make that case when you finish third. We'll stay with the race going forward because Nikki Haley spent a lot more time. She spent a lot more energy campaigning in New Hampshire than in Iowa. So what are you looking for ahead of the New Hampshire primary next week? Well, the stakes are certainly much higher now for Haley in New Hampshire. Um, She may not need to win it to stay in, but she does have to come reasonably close, I think, and show that she can give Trump a real run for his money. I mean, remember, this is about as moderate a state as we're going to see in this nominating process. Independents can vote in New Hampshire, unlike in Iowa. Voters there are far less religious, more moderate, more suburban. If she can't do well there, what's the rationale for her to stay in and who she appeals to? Who she appeals to, indeed. All right, well, send us out into the night. Let's close this chapter. Send us out with a final, your final thought on (laughs) Iowa. I mean, turnout really jumped out to me. I mean, it's just kind of bizarre. Only 110,000 Republicans went out to vote. That's 15% of the total number of registered Republicans in the state. Let's put this another way. Almost $124 million was spent in ads over the past year in Iowa to motivate 110,000 people to vote. I mean, that's $1,124 per voter. We're in a really weird situation where that few voters play such an outsized role in the process. And Pierre's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks. You're welcome. Israel's war against Hamas has taken a massive toll. Of course, that includes the number of people dead and wounded, the infrastructure destroyed, and the trauma that will last for years. NPR's international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam has this look at a different way the war is affecting Israel. The country's economy has taken a serious hit, including in tourism. With the clear blue waters of the Gulf of Aqaba and the stark peaks of the surrounding mountains, Elat has long been a major driver of Israel's economy, pulling in some 250,000 foreign tourists a month. That evaporated in early October, after Hamas militants attacked Israel. Instead of tourists, Elat's hotels are now filled with Israelis displaced by the war. When school lets out, the large, airy lobbies of Elat's luxury hotels are filled with children, zooming by on scooters and grabbing ice cream. After the Hamas attack, the government evacuated more than 60,000 Israelis to Elat. Mechel Rahav comes from Nerim, a tiny community about a mile from the Gaza border, where five people were killed and another five taken hostage by Hamas on October 7th. 
Rahab says militants stormed their house. Her husband shot one dead, then handed her an M16 rifle. He gave me the gun, and we were looking at each other, and we said, we're fighting till the last bullet that we have. Rahav's house was destroyed, but the family survived. They arrived in Eilat with nothing, and like many others, relied on donations from the people in the city. Rahav says Eilat was like a cocoon, which helped them deal with the emotional aftermath of the Hamas attack. Like other displaced Israelis, Rahav's hotel rooms and food are paid for by the Israeli government. Uh, the thing is, you know, Eilat, I very much love the city, but it's remote from everything. And a lot of us work two, three hours from here. While evacuees like Rahav adjusted to their temporary homes, business owners in Eilat adjusted to a new reality. The once busy tree-lined boulevards are deserted, restaurants and shops are empty, and worry amongst business owners is almost palpable. Shmulek Zino owns a 30-foot wood-trimmed tourist boat. Come, you go upstairs. You will say, I'll show you upstairs. Sorry about the mess. Okay. Zino says for three decades, the family-run business has been showing mostly European tourists the sights around Eilat. We're doing uh, cruises with uh, lunch, and then also for diving, we sometimes we're doing. And uh, normally we're like, cruising around the border, Jordan, Egypt. Dolphin Reef. Nowadays, Zeno spends his days doing maintenance on his boat and tending to his dockside flower bed. He says he's taking a real financial hit because there are no tourists. Nothing, nothing. Three and a half, four months, even not one cruise we didn't have here. And we don't know what's going to be in the future, you know. We, we, we didn't see the end of this war. <laughs> Not far away, Sami Azule gazes wearily out at a few children playing in the Gulf of Aqaba and shakes his head. He owns Eilat Water Sports, which rents out paddle boards and the like. He's had to lay off 15 people. Azule says many of the evacuees don't have money for water sports and adds that tourists don't want to come to a depressing place for vacation. The problem is, so they don't like to stay because the atmosphere is not good. People are suffering, people are in a bad situation. Why should they come here? Who wants to come to make a holiday when there is only, only people who are very sad here? The Israeli government recently gave the municipality of Eilat 50 million shekels, about $13 million, to help businesses. Itamar Elitsur, CEO of Eilat Hotels Association, wants part of that money to be used for an advertising campaign aimed at the domestic market, to let Israelis know there are great bargains on flights and hotel rooms and lots of things to do. The prices now in Elat is the lowest one that was ever. It's like uh, we're coming back from uh, the 90s. The price is very, very cheap. Elitzur says the advertising campaign will encourage Israelis to just come take the air. In other words, relax, breathe deep. He says they avoid the word vacation because Israelis don't want to feel guilty about enjoying themselves during the war with Gaza. It's not like, uh, come for vacation to Elat. Most of us have somebody that we know that they are now in the war. So this is our neighbor, this is our friends, somebody in war. And I can't say to them, I'm going to vacation. More rooms are coming available as displaced Israelis in Eilat go home or find new places to live. About half of those who arrived in October have now left. Mikhail Rahav says all those from Nerim are moving to the city of Beersheba, which is closer to home. We have to our community to preserve. So we have to look forward. We have to continue moving. Anat Marley will also go to Beersheva. 
She's looking forward to leaving the hotel in Eilat. I'm just waiting, you know, to be able, I, I can't believe I'm saying it, but cook, clean, wash the dishes. But Marley says many other displaced Israelis aren't ready to leave. A lot of the people are just saying, you know, we're, we have no plan on, on going back until we're security is restored and, and the, the war, the, the goals of the fighting have been accomplished. Which means thousands of displaced Israelis could remain in Elat for a long time. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Elat. Indigenous people make up just 2% of Taiwan's population, and some non-Indigenous Taiwanese look down on them. A lot of average Taiwanese people would say to me, you're Indigenous, you're not Taiwanese. I say, because I'm Indigenous, I am a real Taiwanese person. We talk with Indigenous Taiwanese about life on the island tomorrow on All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is All Things Considered. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Up next, we'll explore how Gerard Mayo will coach the Patriots, a team that had one head coach, Bill Belichick, for the past 24 years. On Wall Street, stocks dropped across the board today. The Dow lost 0.6 percent. The S&P dropped just over a third of a percent. NASDAQ dipped 0.2 percent. In local business news, for the second time in a year, Boston tech startup Vendor has announced it's cutting jobs. The CEO did not say exactly how many people would be let go. He said the move is happening to focus on profitable growth. Vendor became a unicorn in 2022. That's a label given to startups worth more than $1 billion. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. There's rain, freezing rain, and light snow in different parts of the area right now. It should be wrapping up later tonight. Then we'll have gradual clearing of the skies overnight. Lows will be around 20 degrees. Tomorrow looks sunny with temperatures in the upper 20s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Museum, where families play and create together. Make your winter special with a visit to the museum, bostonchildrensmuseum.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Last week, in a mutual split, legendary football coach Bill Belichick parted ways with the New England Patriots after 24 years as head coach. One day later, the team promoted their inside linebackers coach, Gerard Mayo. Mayo will be the youngest head coach in the NFL and the first black head coach for the Patriots. We're joined now by Shalise Manza-Young. She spent almost a decade covering the Patriots and is here to help us unpack all of this. Hey there. Hey, Juana. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for being here. So, Shalise, just how big of a deal is it that Gerard Mayo is taking over the Patriots from Bill Belichick, who's been just a legendary NFL coach? Taking over for somebody as entrenched and successful as Bill Belichick is just not an easy task at all. Gerard Mayo is fortunate. He has the full backing of the ownership group, Robert Kraft, and his son, Jonathan Kraft, 
they tabbed him as head coach in waiting last year. Um, Gerard had lined up interviews with other teams for the head coaching position. And Robert Kraft just was so committed to Gerard Mayo that he said, nope, please cancel those. They renegotiated his contract and essentially made him head coach in waiting. The NFL has something called the Rooney Rule, whereby teams are required to interview at least two non-white candidates for you know their general manager opening, their head coach openings, and if they have openings at their coordinator positions as well. So really it can almost only happen when the head coach in waiting is a black or non-white coach. And Gerard Mayo, we should just note, he's been on the coaching staff of the Patriots since 2019, and he also used to be a linebacker for the Patriots. Can you just tell us a little bit more about him? Yeah, he came in. He was incredibly highly regarded out of the University of Tennessee when he was drafted. Um, He was named Defensive Rookie of the Year after his first year with the Patriots. And he didn't have a long career. He only played about eight years. And then after he retired, Bill Belichick tried to get him into coaching right away. But Gerard actually went into the corporate world for about three years before he did finally come back into the coaching ranks. But he was a tremendous leader. I think he was a captain for every year except his rookie year. And the thing that people forget with an NFL head coaching role is that at the end of the day, whenever there's something big or small that happens related to the team, not just the players, but even beyond that, they come to the head coach. And I think, you know, Gerard's background as a leader, not just in football, but, you know, in the corporate world, will play a big role into that. You followed this team for so many years and There's never been a season quite like this one for the Patriots, and I do not say that in a good way. Um, What do you think is needed to get the team past this year's dreadful losing season? I hope that the Crafts, you know, really give him the time to right the ship in New England, because as of right now, the roster is really bereft of a lot of talent. And because Bill Belichick had his hands in everything, everything, It's almost like doing a gut renovation on your house, down to the studs. So the next big step, I think, will be deciding who is the general manager that Gerard will be working with in terms of acquiring personnel, evaluating the personnel they have now, who they want to move forward with, and, you know, what players they'll be bringing in. Because the Patriots had such a terrible season, they'll be choosing pretty high in the draft and this draft is considered very strong for top-notch quarterbacks coming out of college so I would guess that that's the first thing they do is to try to find a quarterback for the future um, and then start rebuilding from there. And lastly, Shalise, I mean, there's so much to unpack here, but I do just want to make the point that the league has struggled for years, really, with minority hiring efforts. And particularly when we look at the diversity or lack thereof among head coaches, there were only three black head coaches in the NFL for much of this season. So looking at this from a big picture angle, how do you read the elevation of Gerard Mayo in light of that history for the league? You know, the thing that I've gone back to is that he's getting the chance that really no black head coaches have ever gotten before. We've seen white coaches be elevated to head coaching roles with similarly thin coaching resumes. And it's almost unheard of 
for a black head coach to get, you know, that same consideration. The crafts are considered really among the most respected owners in the NFL. And I think, you know, Robert Kraft has been very open about not just as a Jewish man, you know, about trying to combat anti-Semitism, but they also played a role with some of their former players in getting legislation passed in the state of Massachusetts that was helping children of color. You know, they raised the age that children can be tried as adults. They helped, uh, I think, with education budgeting and making sure that more money gets to underserved school districts. And to me, this is him, you know, taking another step. And I don't think that it's just hiring a black man for hiring a black man's sake. I, I think that he really truly believes in Gerard Mayo. He said two years ago to media that there was no ceiling on what Gerard Mayo could do. And he knew that he would be a head coach someday. Sports writer Shalise Manza-Young, thank you so much. Thank you. Elton John has achieved a new status. And no, we do not mean knighthood. He got that back in 1998. Sir Elton John became the 19th person ever to become an EGOT winner. That is an artist who has won an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. He was waiting for an Emmy to finish out that set, and last night... And the Emmy goes to Elton John live. Farewell from Dodger Stadium. He won for Outstanding Variety Special, filmed during his last show in North America at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. Elton John couldn't be at the Emmys to accept the award. He is recovering from knee surgery, but in a statement, he said that he was incredibly grateful and humbled. He started collecting for the EGOT back in 1987 when he won his first Grammy for That's What Friends Are For, a collaboration with Dionne Warwick and Friends. In 1995, he earned his first Oscar for The Lion King's Can You Feel the Love Tonight? And in 2000, he took home a Tony for Best Original Score for the musical Aida. Elton John is the third pop star to complete the EGOT set in good company with Jennifer Hudson and John Legend. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Are you working on your fitness in the new year? Join us at City Space on Monday, January 29th for a boxing night. It'll feature strength training and shadow boxing paired with hip-hop and house music. Tickets at WBUR.org events. 
We'll have a messy mix of weather this evening, freezing rain, snow, mist, and or fog, depending on where you are. It should wrap up by late tonight, then most of the clouds will move out overnight as lows get down around 20. It'll be sunny tomorrow with highs in the upper 20s. All the day's business news is next on Marketplace. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bridgewater State University, ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list, bridgew.edu.